All right, so let's get started. So I'd first like to thank everyone for dialing into this SMA space speaker session entitled Nuclear Entanglement, the Growing Threat to Command and Control, and especially thank our speaker, Dr. James Acton, for taking the time to present today. So hopefully everyone that dialed in received his bio and his slides, and if you haven't received these materials, you can feel free to email me and I'll send those over. The slides weren't included in the initial event invitation, so please refer to the event reminder if you received one for those slides. So now I'm going to turn the floor over to Dr. Nick Wright from the University of Birmingham to introduce our speaker today. So Nick, over to you. Thank you very much, Nicole. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, James Acton, uh, who I've known for a number of years. Um, he has a very wide uh, range of expertise. So he holds a PhD in the theoretical physics from uh, Cambridge University in the UK. Uh, he has uh, published extensively on a wide variety of nuclear issues, both, both um, strategic and uh, civilian. Uh, he has published academic international relations work, uh, and he's also published in a wide range of uh, more general um, outlets, such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, and so on. Um, his work uh, at the moment is focusing on escalation implications of advanced conventional weapons, He's done fantastic work, for example, a few years ago now, looking at conventional global strike. And for quite a while now, he's been looking at uh, issues of nuclear entanglement. So this is how nuclear weapons and their command and control systems are becoming increasingly entangled with non-nuclear capabilities. And he's the perfect person to discuss these issues with respect to space. He's examined them not only uh, in the US context, but also published I think last year, or certainly recently, uh, work on entanglements from the Chinese perspective and also from the Russian perspective. Um, so it's with enormous interest that, uh, that I'm listening today, and I, uh, uh, I'm very excited to hear James's talk. Thanks, James. Should I kick off? Nick, thanks for that kind introduction, and thanks to everyone who's uh, listening today. Um, as Nick says, my background is very much in the nuclear area. Um, and I got interested in space security because so many critical systems for nuclear command and control are space-based. During the Cold War, um, we worried about threats to nuclear command and control satellites, really in the context that they might be destroyed at the beginning of a nuclear war. Uh, very deliberately, um, you know, the Soviets might destroy U.S. satellites to give them a leg up at the beginning of a nuclear war. The argument that I'm going to be advancing today is there's a very, very different threat that's largely emerged since the end of the Cold War, which is that nuclear command and control satellites might be inadvertently <laughs> destroyed over the course of a conventional conflict. Uh, and that has, I think, significant implications for the way we should think about nuclear command and control. Uh, and I'll close by offering some preliminary thoughts on what kind of architectures might end up being more survivable. Uh, this is part of a bigger piece of work about the growing entanglement between nuclear and non-nuclear weapons. So let me start by defining this term entanglement to, to give you some of the, the bigger picture here. Uh, if we can go on to the next slide, the one that starts, what is entanglement? Um, entanglement, as I define it, has lots of different elements to it, but fundamentally it's about interactions between nuclear and non-nuclear weapons. Um, the two I'm going to focus on today, which are the two in red at the top of this, 
are uh, the growing, I would argue, nuclear threats, both real and perceived, to nuclear forces and to their command, control, communication, and intelligence capabilities. Uh, and secondly, the growing use of dual-use C3I capabilities. Uh, that is, capabilities used for both nuclear and non-nuclear operations. Uh, that's going to be very much the focus of my talk today. Um, I also you know, want to point out that this is part of a larger phenomenon. Um, and also not a, not an, a new phenomenon either, uh, though it's becoming more severe in my opinion. Uh, Dual-use weapon systems, those that can deliver both nuclear and conventional warheads are an example of entanglement. In fact, the very first nuclear weapon delivery system, the B-29 bomber, um, used uh, to deliver uh, uh, a nuclear weapon uh, to Hiroshima was a dual-use system. It was a conventional system that was converted for nuclear use. Um, throughout the Cold War, uh, NATO used nuclear threats to deter um, non-nuclear aggression from the Soviet Union. Um, we believe in some countries, particularly China, there may be the co-location today of nuclear and non-nuclear weapons, uh, and also non-nuclear and nuclear C3I capabilities. Having said that entanglement is not new, I think there are a number of reasons why it's increased significantly since the end of the Cold War uh, and is still increasing today. Let's go on to the next slide, uh, which is the one entitled Drivers in, of Entanglement. Um, and I want to highlight four different technological and doctrinal trends that I think are deeply relevant to this problem, particularly space security. Firstly, non-nuclear weapons are becoming increasingly capable. Um, you know, at the unclassified level, we don't know precisely how sophisticated Russian and Chinese ASAP weapons are. Uh, but my view is that if U.S. satellites, including those in higher orbits, highly elliptical and geostationary orbits, are not vulnerable today, they very likely will be soon. So these improvements in non-nuclear weaponry I think increase the physical possibility of, 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 of attacks on nuclear command and control, control systems. And, and very specifically, increase the possibility of no, the feasibility, I should say, of non-nuclear attacks on nuclear command and control systems. All of this stuff has been vulnerable to nuclear weapons for a long time here. What's new is the increasing vulnerability to non-nuclear weapons. Secondly, since the end of the Cold War, there's been a reduction in the redundancy of the U.S. nuclear command and control system. Um, in some cases, uh, aging capabilities have been phased out without replacement. Uh, so to give one example, there used to be two networks of ground-based radio antennae for communicating with submarines, one operating at very low and low frequencies and a separate network operating at extremely low frequencies. That ELF system was dismantled, hasn't been replaced at all. So just the, the number of the, the, the redundancy in, in, in nuclear command and control has been reduced. Another way in which redundancy has been reduced is an effort to harmonize components across different delivery systems. So there's an effort underway at the moment, as I understand it, to try to use the same receivers for satellite signals on different nuclear delivery systems which is a reduction in redundancy in one in the sense that if there was, say, a, um, a cyber vulnerability in that system, um, then one could imagine multiple different delivery systems being infected. Uh, if there were different satellite receivers on different systems, then the chance of a single vulnerability compromising multiple systems would be smaller. 
The third trend is an increasing reliance on dual-use command and control assets. Those are command and control assets that are used for both nuclear and conventional missions. This is not new. There were absolutely examples of those systems during the Cold War. Indeed, U.S. satellites, communication satellites, there has never been a U.S. communication satellite that was exclusively for nuclear command and control. But nonetheless, there's a trend line of increasing dual-useness, if I can use those terms. Uh, much of this talk is going to focus on early warning today as just a concrete application, a concrete example. Um, during the Cold War, the early U.S. early warning satellites, uh, they, they, they did have non-nuclear applications towards the end of the Cold War. Uh, but today, the most advanced U.S. early warning satellites, the space-based infrared system, SIBAS, um, has, uh, is deeply integrated into conventional war fighting. Um, it provides, for instance, queuing for ballistic missile defenses against non-nuclear ballistic missiles. In the event of a conflict against Russia or China, the very first uh, warning that the U.S. would have that either side had fired non-nuclear ballistic missiles would be SIBAS satellites. The earlier you get that warning, the earlier you can fire interceptors and the greater the area each interceptor can defend. Um, this trend is also true with ground-based systems. Uh, paved pause radars, um, which are uh, large ground-based radars for ballistic missile early warning, are currently being upgraded into upgraded early warning radars that are designed to help assist with, non with ballistic missile defense uh, including non-nuclear ballistic missile defense. The final trend, which I'm not going to discuss in depth today, uh, the paper that's been circulated presents more of the evidence for this, but is in each of the three great nuclear powers, if I can use that term, it's not a great one, China, Russia, and the United States. In all three of those countries, publicly available documents seem to indicate that each country is increasingly thinking about attacking adversaries command and control systems as part of conventional war fighting. In order to you know, win or at least not lose a conflict, uh, each side perceives that the other's command and control systems are a, a potential vulnerability and attacking those command and control systems um, um, could be a way of gaining an advantage in a conventional conflict. Those four trends, when you take them together, to my mind, create severe uh, challenges for nuclear command and control. Let's go on to the next slide. And I want to introduce a concept that I term an incidental attack. This is an attack that's conduct against a command and control system, most likely that's conducted for the purpose of winning a conventional war, but because that's a dual-use command and control system, such an attack, incidentally, has nuclear implications. So to give a concrete example, imagine we're in a conventional conflict against Russia, say, and Russia is firing non-nuclear ballistic missiles against targets in Europe, and U.S. missile defenses in Europe are proving effective in blunting those Russian attacks. In that scenario, Russia could have an incentive to attack U.S. early warning satellites, potentially just for the purpose of trying to defeat U.S. missile defenses and enable its non-nuclear ballistic missiles to penetrate into Europe. 
Um, but that would obviously have implications. You know, it would be undermining in the process a key a key aspect of U.S. nuclear command and control. Um, and so the point about incidental attacks is that over the course of a conventional conflict, they can lead to the nuclear command and control architecture being degraded. Not because the other side is necessarily thinking about fighting a nuclear war, but as a as a as a non but, but, but because the other side is thinking about trying to avoid losing a conventional war. Um, even if such even if these incidental attacks were not escalatory, they would be a very significant problem. Um, we don't want if the worst happened if a conventional conflict turned nuclear. It would be a very significant problem, in my opinion, if even before that conflict started, um, the U.S. nuclear command and control system had been severely degraded by non-nuclear attacks. For what it's worth, and I argue this in much more length of the paper that's been circulated, um, I think these kinds of incidental attacks have the risk of being escalatory, uh, but in an inadvertent way. Um, the other side is not necessarily intending them to be inadvertent. Both Russian and Chinese experts talk about how attacks against SIPA's early warning satellites would be perfectly legitimate, normal, tactical military operations. I don't think we would interpret them that way. I think we would risk interpret them as being much, much more highly escalatory. And there's three different escalation mechanisms that I sketch out in the paper. Um, and let me, you know, I, I'm just going to briefly highlight those now without going into much depth. Crisis instability is a very well discussed, argued about escalation pathway. Um, you know, that goes back to the 1950s. Um, but um, the point being that um, if I believe my nuclear forces are at risk, I might use them first, these so-called use-or-lose dynamics. And incidental attacks, both against the United States, more likely U.S. attacks against Russia and China, uh, could exacerbate these use-or-lose dynamics. That's not massively new, and I, I don't want to in go into that in huge amounts of depth. What I do want to point out is that two of these mechanisms, I think, could cause the U.S. to escalate, uh, which is not something we've actually worried about massively since the end of the Cold War. Going back to this scenario of Russian or Chinese attacks against early warning satellites. As I said, Russia or China may be making those attacks exclusively for the purpose of winning or not losing a conventional war. The problem is that if they were thinking about using nuclear weapons, they might do exactly the same thing. If Russia or China were thinking about nuclear weapons, they'd want uh, using nukes. They would want those nuclear weapons to penetrate U.S. missile defenses. And so, as a way of preparing the battle space for nuclear use, they might start attacking U.S. early warning satellites. We can't distinguish in the U.S. between those two things. We can't tell why they're destroying U.S. early warning satellites. Is it just for the purpose of winning the conventional war, or is it potentially for fighting a nuclear war? We, we can't tell the difference, and my argument is that could be escalatory. There's another escalation mechanism, which I term the damage limitation window. And that is that as the recent nuclear posture review openly states, um, if deterrence fails, a US goal is to limit damage. 
limiting damage is really difficult. Um, it requires very exquisite ISR capabilities to locate the adversary's mobile missiles. And, you know, both Russia and China have mobile nuclear missiles. We'd require good early warning systems for missile defenses. If over the course of a conventional conflict, our command and control system became degraded, we might worry that if the war turned nuclear, we wouldn't be able to do any damage limitation or at least damage limitation would likely be highly ineffective because we lacked the enabling capabilities for effective damage limitation. And that's escalatory because I think before the nuclear war starts, that may lead us to take escalatory steps to protect our damage limitation capabilities. I mean, the Nuclear Posture Review outlines one of those steps. The Nuclear Posture Review threatens overtly to use nuclear weapons in the event that command and control is attacked. Um, but I think there's other steps we might take. Um, you know, things like um, at the beginning of a war against Russia or China, we might want to restrict strikes uh, and not strike deep into their territory uh, as a way of signaling we have limited war aims, as a way of trying to keep the war limited. If key satellites are under threat from ASAT systems deep within Russia and China, that potentially creates pressures to say, you know, we said these limits originally, but they no longer hold. We've got to take out Russian and Chinese ASAT capabilities deep, deep within Russia or China. So, as I say, even if incidental attacks were not escalatory, they would be a problem. I think they're also escalatory as well. Um, let's go on to the next slide then. I want to focus a bit more about SIVAs and give you two reasons to worry about, or you know, over one reason to worry about why attacks against uh, early warning satellites are so problematic. Firstly, as I've already said, SIVAs particularly, and this uh, is deeply involved in both nuclear and non-nuclear operations, provides early warning of a nuclear attack. Um, it's used in non-nuclear ballistic missile defense. There's another form of entanglement here as well. Um, as I'm sure many people are aware, there are uh, six SIBAS satellites, two of which are in highly elliptical orbit. And those are not dedicated SIBAS satellites. Those are SIBAS sensors on other satellites. Now, the Pentagon uh, doesn't say what those other satellites that host SIBAS detectors are used for, there's lots of unclassified sources, right or wrong, that claim that they're hosted by electronic intelligence collection satellites. And if you have an electronic intelligence collection satellite in a highly elliptical orbit, you're probably collecting intelligence about Russia. That could give Russia an incentive to attack those electronic intelligence satellites in a conflict. And SIBA's detectors would be collateral damage in that. But they would, you know, clearly if you're destroying the satellite that hosts the detector, you're almost certainly, you're, you're going to destroy that detector as well. I emphasize this point about how deeply SIBA's satellites are entangled to emphasize the incentives to strike these satellites in a conventional conflict. And worse still, if these satellites were attacked in a conventional conflict, especially after the legacy defense support program satellites have been finally retired, even very, very limited strikes against SIBAs could deprive the U.S. the ability to monitor continually adversaries' potential nuclear launches. 
about four or five years ago, General Shelton, when he was commander of Space Command, on the record, stated that there was a single point vulnerability in the Sibbers constellation. He didn't say what it was, but when you look at the way that constellation is arrayed, he's almost certainly referring to those highly elliptical satellites. Um, in order to maintain continuous monitoring of the northern polar region, you've got to have two satellites in highly elliptical orbit. If you take out one of those satellites, then you know, then you lose continuous monitoring of the northern polar region. You get about three and a half hours each day of no coverage or limited coverage. I think it's three and a half hours a day of no coverage and an hour and a half of only partial coverage. Especially with global warming and the uh, retreat of Arctic sea ice in the summer. Um, the northern polar region is an increasingly plausible place, in my opinion, from which Russia's, Russian SSNs, SSBNs could operate. Um, there's a dual point vulnerability in Sibbers. Um, if you took out one of the early warning satellites, sorry, one of the Sibbers HEO satellites and uh, the westernmost Sibbers satellite in geostationary orbit, you'd lose coverage of potential Russian SSBN patrol areas in the North Atlantic. Um, more generally, I'd point out that, you know, if Russia or China simply wanted to make sure that Sibbers satellites were unable to see their non-nuclear ballistic missiles, and they took out all of the Sibbers satellites that could see their non-nuclear ballistic missile launches, they would deprive the U.S. of a space-based early warning capability against the vast majority of their nuclear forces. This should be worried, this is, I mean, I think this is worrying for various reasons, but not least because the U.S. has a policy of so-called dual phenomenology. It wants to be able to characterize the launch of adversary ballistic missiles with two independent technologies. And to my knowledge, there's only two technologies that are currently out there for this purpose. Space-based infrared early warning and ground-based radars. So it's wrong to think of the ground-based radars as a backup to space to early warning. Both systems are required to be operative to meet the requirements for dual phenomenology. You lose space-based early warning, you lose dual phenomenology. And incidentally, radars are entangled too. I mean, in a Russia conflict, the Filingdale's radar in the United Kingdom in particular, I think is a very likely target because of its role in non-nuclear ballistic missile defense. Let me end by talking a bit on the next slide, which is the one entitled Basic Approaches to Risk Reduction. Let me end, just spend five, 10 minutes talking a little bit from a technical perspective about how, um, how to try to go about reducing these risks. I think there's two fundamentally different approaches one can take to risk reduction. You can try and make your assets less likely to be attacked, and you can try and reduce the consequences of an attack. Making, an, making assets less likely to be attacked involves shaping adversary perceptions. We have to make Russia and China think these are less desirable targets, and that necessarily means talking about what we're doing, at least privately with the Russians and Chinese, possibly publicly as well. Reducing the consequences of an attack doesn't involve shaping Russian or Chinese perceptions. That's just, if they attack, we've got things like extra backups in place. Those measures can be taken secretly. 
it's often impossible to keep it keep these measures secret for budgetary reasons, appropriations, and, and such like. But in theory, the purpose of this is not undermined by keeping capabilities secret. Let me just emphasize that sometimes these two approaches to risk reduction can be intention, though they're not always intention. I mean, one way of making assets less likely to be attacked is using the risk of entanglement to create escalation. You know, the um, saying to the Russians and Chinese is the nuclear posture review does. If you attack these satellites for whatever purpose, we could end up in a nuclear war. That's an example of where you're trying to reduce the likelihood of an attack And if you also took measures to create backup systems, you would undermine the credibility of your threat to escalate to nuclear use. Or at least you might make the Russians and Chinese think you would be less likely to escalate if they attack cybers because you had backup systems in place. So there can be tensions between these two objectives. There's not always tensions. I mean, just building more satellites is very expensive, but you know, you their hope to reduce the likelihood of an attack by creating a more redundant architecture and also reduce the consequences of an attack. So these objectives can be intentioned, though they're not necessarily so. Let me throw out some ideas then about what could be done practically. Um, and let's move on to the next slide about reducing the likelihood of an attack. One of the ideas out there is to disaggregate early war, to disaggregate nuclear and non-nuclear capabilities. Um, to have a nuclear command and control system and a non-nuclear command and control system. I think certainly with early warning, that's literally impossible. And it's impossible because Russia and China are building dual-use ballistic missiles. If you can't tell from the outside of a missile whether it's got a nuclear warhead or a conventional warhead, even if you wanted to create two different early warning systems, you, you couldn't do so. On the other hand, what I think one could do is create as a backup to SIBIRS, and this is not, I'm not in this slide talking about alternatives to SIBIRS, I'm talking about supplements to SIBIRS. Additional early warning sensors up in space that had limited capabilities that were less attractive to attack. And what I'm imagining here is a dispersed architecture. So one would have sensors hosted on other satellites. As I've mentioned, this is what SIBIRS HEO is at the moment. Uh, it's also what we did in the Cold War with a communication system called AXATCOM. Uh, these were communication transponders for nuclear operations mounted on satellites used for other purposes. The question is whether one could put these in space and also try to demonstrate, make changes to these to make it clear that they were less useful. They were only of limited utility and hence um, um, less attractive targets for an adversary. Well, one way of doing this would be to create low-resolution detectors. You know, an early warning satellite is basically a telescope in the infrared wavelength pointing at the Earth. If you make that telescope physically small, just as a kind of basic law of physics, you get worse resolution. You know, SIBIRS has exquisite resolution. Photos have been released. If you created early warning sensors that weren't good resolution, they were pretty low resolution, they would be useful for early warning. You could tell if the other side was launching missiles, 
they wouldn't be that useful for ballistic missile defense. You really need the very high resolution for ballistic missile defense and other potentially non-nuclear missiles. So the idea would be that if you stuck a load of these low-resolution detectors in space, the Russians and Chinese might believe you that they're low-resolution because these are physically small detectors. As I said, it's a law of physics, small telescope, poor resolution. Um, and um, you know that those might be less attractive targets. Uh, there's another way you could limit capabilities too. At the moment, SIBIRS operates at a wavelength that's not absorbed by the atmosphere. Because you want to detect a missile as soon as it's launched, if you're tuned to a wavelength that's absorbed by the atmosphere, you're only going to see the missile when it eventually reaches space. And you're not going to see short-range missiles that never go into space at all. But that could be an advantage. If you created a whole load of dispersed sensors, that were tuned to a different infrared frequency uh, that was only absorbed, that was absorbed by the atmosphere. This backup system would only detect long-range missiles uh, once they entered space. So it wouldn't be useful for short-range missiles, which is the ones that we most want to do non-nuclear missile, ballistic missile defense about. So the idea would be that if you could convince Russia and China that these really were limited detectors, and I think that's very hard, by the way, in this case. They would say, well, these don't interfere with our short-range ballistic missile operations. It would only be long-range missiles that are most likely to be nuclear and headed for the United States, so we have less of an incentive to attack these additional sensors in space. One of the big trade-offs with both of these ideas, and there's various challenges with both of these ideas, but one of the big trade-offs is if we have a backup to SIBIRS, does that reduce deterrence of Russia and China attacking SIBIRS? I think there's a real trade-off there. Um, let's go on to the final slide then, about reducing the consequences of an attack. Um, and again, here the goal is not to make less attractive targets. Here the goal is simply to create a more redundant architecture that it would matter less if early warning satellites were attacked in a conventional conflict. So the first idea, I think, is probably what General Hyten imagines, and he's kind of talked about this publicly and fairly in somewhat vague terms. You know, I've already floated the idea of having low-resolution detectors as a supplement to SIBIRS. One could do exactly the same thing as an alternative to SIBIRS with kind of medium-resolution detectors. You know, basically take what we have with SIBIRS HEO, detectors on other satellites and stick them on as many other satellites as you possibly could. Forget new, super, forget dedicated SIBIS satellites in GEO under this idea. Just try to have 5, 10, 20 SIBIS sensors or next generation sensors on satellites used for other purposes. These wouldn't have the amazing resolution that current SIBIS has, but it would have better resolution than the idea that I proposed previously. And this would be very much an alternative to SIBIRS, like the costs involved, I think this, this couldn't be a supplement. Um, well, um, you could have this as an alternative to SIBIRS, it would be more expensive. Um, sorry, I'm confusing myself here. There's two ways of thinking about this. You could have this as, an, as a supplement to SIBIRS, alongside SIBIRS. 
And that would actually be quite useful if you could keep these new capabilities secret, because then you wouldn't undermine deterrence of attacks against cybers. It's essentially quite difficult to keep these secret. Alternatively, you could have this instead of cybers. You could, you could field these architect this architecture instead of dedicated cybers satellites. And there you would essentially be saying we're accepting a less capable architecture in return for a more redundant architecture. The final way I have thought about of trying to make early warning more redundant is there's at least one other kind of satellite that sits up in exactly the right orbit and just stares at the Earth continuously in very, very similar wavelengths. And that's weather satellites. In many ways, weather satellites look very, very much like ballistic missile early warning satellites. And that made me think that there's potentially a capability there, a, a non-nuclear military weather satellite or even civilian weather satellite that could be a useful backup to Sibbert. Now, there's various diff difficulties associated with this. Right now, as far as I can see, weather satellites don't operate at the right frequency band. They're in different parts of infrared. So one would have to build extra frequency bands into future weather satellites, but that's not very expensive. Also, most US weather satellites are over the US for obvious reasons. The people who have the best place weather satellites are US allies. European allies in the case of Russia, Japan, South Korea in the case of China. So one could imagine you know, having a quiet agreement with allies that in their future weather satellites, they're going to build in infrared detectors at the right frequency bands to be useful for ballistic missile early warning. Um, and uh, we kind of make arrangements to be able to use those in the event that SIBAS is shot down. For any number of reasons, it would be ideal to keep this secret, and it would be ideal to have this as a, uh, as a, a supplement, not an alternative to SIBAS. Um, but... Um, you know, as I say, the general idea here is to make more creative use of other satellites that are already out there. Um, I've probably spoken for about five minutes too long already. I apologize for that. Uh, very much happy to take questions and have a discussion on this and very much look forward to hearing your thoughts. Uh, but before that, just let me say thank you for your attention. All right. Thanks, Dr. Acton.